I wonder if you feel any tension between what's happening in this room and the vision for reaching the hardest neighborhoods in Scotland that you heard about just before our intermission. The, the gritty, on the ground, in your face, tough, hard, real problems of the world and a magnificent room and, and uh, healthy bodies and people who seem to have it together and, and songs lifted with delightful music. Do those worlds go together? Let me read you something from Second Chronicles. Moab and Ammon, peoples of Mount Seir, a great army, had come up against Jehoshaphat. What does he do? How does he go to war, the blood and guts kind of thing that destroy an army? Here's what he does. This is Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 20. They rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Believe his prophets, and you will succeed. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire. And as they went out before the army, now get the picture, this is a vulnerable place to be for the choir. As they went out before the army to say, give thanks to the Lord, for his steadfast love endures forever. They're shouting this truth about God, singing this truth as a choir over Ammon, over the peoples of, of Mount Seir. And when they began to sing, verse 22, when they began to sing and praise the Lord, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir who had come against Judah so that they were routed. There is a connection. The routing of the enemies of God and the singing of the people of God go together. I got a phone call one time from a bunch of college students who at 10 o'clock at night had a demon-possessed young woman trapped that wouldn't let her out in a, in a room and they wanted me to come and deliver her. I had never done anything like that in my life. So I called a friend upstairs who lived in the apartment upstairs, and we went together, walked in there. She, she was hard, low-voiced, growling, angry, and they just said, that's not her. Knocked the Bible out of my hand when I tried to read it. After about two hours, we began to sing. We didn't know what to do. I'd never done anything. We just began to sing. Alleluia, alleluia, 
Hallelujah. Just sang it over and over, and then we began to add words to it. She went absolutely crazy, flopped on the floor, screaming for Satan not to leave her, went unconscious as far as we could tell, stayed that way for a few minutes, and woke up totally different. Looked totally different, sounded totally different. I handed her my Bible, had her read all of Romans 8. I've seen the power of song. I've seen it in my church, and I've seen it in the neighborhoods. I've seen it in families. And so for me, this is not a big tension. 20 schemes, singing to God, magnificent, life-changing truth. So what I want to do for just a few minutes is try to give you a, a feel, at least this is my take, on the kind of Christianity represented by Keith and Kristen Getty and Mes McConnell and, and all the, all the, the folks who, who work to plant churches in, in schemes of Scotland. I have two sentences, just two sentences that I want to give you, unpack them and suggest that if, if you want to know what Christianity is, real Christianity, these two sentences come close to getting at what 20 Schemes especially is trying to do. Here are the two sentences. Number one, Christians care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. That's sentence number one. Sentence number two, Christians care about all injustice, especially injustice against God. So let me unpack each of those sentences so that you can, and if you're an unbeliever here tonight, I hope that what you get from what I'm saying is a picture of what you're confronted with. Not any tradition you've seen, because the church has made many mistakes. I'm drawing these things out of the Bible as I've seen them worked out in real Christians' lives, and this is what you have to choose, or not. So, first sentence, Christians care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. Take the first half, Christians care about all suffering. That half of the sentence is designed to prick the conscience of Christians who are hesitant to mobilize themselves or others to care about all suffering, like disease, malnutrition, disability, mental illness, injury, abuse, assault, loneliness, rejection, calamity. This caring has to be restricted, they feel, because if we give ourselves to caring for all suffering, we will surely then diminish the real concern of the Christian life, which is caring about eternal suffering. And I want to say no. No, it doesn't have to be that way. You don't have to trade one off against the other. Jesus is our model here, right? Over and over again in the Gospels, it says that he had compassion, he cared. Explicitly, he had compassion on the crowds, Matthew 9, on the sick, Matthew 14, on the hungry, Matthew 15, on the blind, Matthew 20, on the leper, Mark 1, on the demon-possessed, Mark 9, on the bereaved, Luke 7. And when he told a parable to try to explain what love your neighbor as yourself means, he told about the Good Samaritan, and he ended by saying, 
He had compassion on the man on the side of the road. So embedded in love your neighbor is care about the suffering of your neighbor. Here's the second half of that sentence. Christians care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. Now that half of the sentence is intended to call out unbelief, maybe some in this room, unbelief of professing Christians who don't believe there is such a thing as eternal suffering. They're too modern for that. Hell doesn't exist. It's an old-fashioned concept that we should be done with. So all this talk about eternal suffering, Piper, is passe and it's not real. So I'm calling you out and saying Christians don't talk that way because they believe Jesus, right? And Jesus said in Matthew 25, 41, then the king will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And these on his left will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And the Apostle Paul followed Jesus and said, those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. There's an atheist entertainer in America named Penn Gillette. He's part of the uh, Penn and Teller magic guys. And he said, how much do you have to hate somebody? to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them. Or to believe that everlasting punishment is coming on unbelievers and not warn them. How much do you have to hate somebody? I just read an article a few weeks ago about missionaries who had gone into the Amazon jungle to reach an unreached, totally unreached people group with the, with the gospel. And I don't know whether this mission was like this, but so let's just say this is about the person who wrote the article. But the article begins by extolling the good human effects of missionary labor, like education came and medicine came and prosperity came and literacy came. Yes, it's remarkable how those things happened. And, and then the article ended with a, a great emphasis on human flourishing with one passing mention of Jesus in the middle of the article. No God, no wrath, no cross, no salvation, no forgiveness of sins, no faith, no hell, no heaven, no eternal joy in God, and it was held up as a model of Christian missions. That's unbelief. That's what's become of many Christians today. They're out in the name of Jesus telling nobody about the fact that there is eternal suffering. They don't believe the sentence that I'm commending to you. 20 Schemes does, Keith and Kristen do. We, I'm speaking with them now, I love these ministries. We care about all suffering because Jesus did especially eternal suffering. That's sentence number one and why I love these ministries. Number two, 
Christians care about all injustice, especially injustice against God. This is real alive for me in America right now. So much fevered attention to injustices that exist. So here's the first half of the sentence. Christians care about all injustice. That, that is intended to prick the conscience of Christians who either because of self-indulgence or fear have dulled the capacity of their hearts to care about the injustices of the world. All the ways that people treat people worse than they deserve. Hundreds of different ways around the world that human beings have found to treat each other worse than they deserve. The reason I say that it might come from self-indulgence is because as I look at my church and, and, and evangelicalism in, in America, I don't think most professing Christians hold back from advocacy of justice or indignation at injustice out of principled opposition. I think they hold back because of the moral stupor that comes over us when we are satiated with the comforts of the world. We're just sitting at home comfortable. And so the thought of breaking out of it in order to engage and speak or act against some injustice is simply too intrusive in our lives. And the reason I say that indifference to injustice might come from fear is because, oh, I know so many who are so concerned about their label, label, a Christian label, that if they get engaged with this cause or this cause, if they just speak, if they tweet, if they blog, if they Instagram, if they do anything that would advocate something just, the label is compromised. Oh, you're one of those. Well, no, I'm not one of those. That's a risk that many will not take. It just isn't worth it. So, that first half of the sentence is to prick the conscience of those kinds of Christians. I presume there are some in Scotland. Second half of the sentence. Twenty schemes type believers, Getty type believers, I would like to think of myself as one of them, say, we care about all injustice, especially injustice against God. Now, this half of the sentence is intended to call out the, the practical unbelief of Christians for whom injustices against humans ignite more indignation, more passion in their hearts and in their mouths than the global tragedy of injustice against God. People who are fired up in the name of Jesus 
for the injustices in this direction and feel almost nothing and say almost nothing about the injustice this way. They are anesthetized to it for one reason or another. What is injustice? I mean, let's, let's, let's analyze what in the world do you mean injustice against God? What, what are you talking about? What is injustice? My definition is injustice is to treat people worse than they deserve. You can't say treat people different than they deserve because if you treat somebody better than they deserve, we don't call it injustice, we call it grace. But if you treat people worse than they deserve, you call it injustice. So that's my definition. And the more a person deserves and the less we render what they deserve, the greater the injustice. Bigger desert, less rendering, bigger injustice. God alone deserves the highest honor, highest praise, highest love, highest fear, highest devotion, highest allegiance, highest admiration, highest obedience. God alone deserves the absolute maximum of all those things and every single human being has fallen short of that. All of us have exchanged the glory of God for the glory of human beings and thus insulted him to the height. A great injustice against God being done all day all over the world until Jesus breaks in. So every human is guilty of an injustice that is infinitely worse than all the injustices against man put together. Now, if that sentence sounds like an overstatement to you, I'm going to say it again so you can weigh it. My suggestion is your God is too small. Every human is guilty of an injustice, namely against God, that is infinitely worse than all the injustices against man put together. God is infinitely deserving of human worship and trust and obedience. Infinitely deserving. And therefore treating God as unworthy of our total allegiance makes every person guilty of an infinite injustice against God. That's the problem with the world. That's why the gospel, that last song we sang, did, did you hear the line, a debt we could never afford? A debt we could never afford. You know what that debt is? Blackballing God, an infinite injustice. There's, you can't even begin to come close to paying that debt. There's only one way that debt could be handled. There's only one way there could be hope for human beings who have so committed treason against God and injustice against God. Only one way. And here's the irony. I'm almost done. Here's the irony. 
the injustice against God among us, among hum humans, came to a climax in the very moment when God himself, in mercy, not justice merely, mercy, came into the world in his son, Jesus. He, he came after us. All these rebels, all these enemies, all this injustice being slung at him. And he, he comes as a servant in the, in the person of Jesus. He comes into the world to pay the debt so that he could be just in not holding us accountable for our injustice. That's the meaning of the cross. His son bears the payment and the penalty, a just sentence, so that all the injustice of all those who would believe on him would not be held against them. And at the very moment when he came to do that, our injustice against God reached its climax. Let me read it to you. This is Acts chapter 8, verse 32. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Let's talk about Jesus. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb, before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. The miracle of the cross, the miracle of the death of Jesus, the miracle of the gospel, the miracle that can change 20, hundreds of schemes, the miracle that fills songs, the miracle is in the very moment when we withheld justice from the Son of God, justice was satisfied so that those withholding justice could be justified. This is glorious news. How could we not go anywhere, <laughs> schemes or the richest part of town with that news? So as God in the death of Christ absorbed the penalty of the injustice we had committed, he purchased a people. And I'm, I'm closing by inviting you into that people because you come into that people by faith. He purchased a people. And anybody who would believe may be part of this purchased people. He purchases a people, and what the mark of those people is, and I, I pray that you would bear this mark. The mark of this people is that they prize, they prize above all things Christ crucified as the vindication of God's justice in forgiving their injustice. That's what they prize above everything. I want that Jesus for me because I know my attitude and my actions have been so offensive to the God who made me, that there's no hope for me unless that's true. And so I praise 
that Christ. And they bear this mark, and I end with this. They speak and they believe two sentences. They now say, because of Jesus, I care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. And because of Jesus, I care about all injustices, especially injustice against God. So Father, I pray now as I walk off this platform with gratitude in my heart for 20 schemes and, and Keith and Kristen Getty and their band and their vision to help the church sing grand and glorious gospel truth. With gratitude, I pray for everybody in this room that those two sentences would be their portion because of Christ. What a difference it would make in the schemes and every other part of the, the nation if every person in this room said, yep, those, those two sentences, I believe them. They're going to mark my life. I ask for that miracle now in Jesus' name. Amen.